Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And in this podcast, we're taking a closer look at the implications of China's changing demographics. Earlier this year, China reset its five-year economic targets to focus on the quality rather than the absolute level of growth. More recent regulatory actions have taken aim at addressing the rising costs of what have been dubbed the three mountains of housing, healthcare and education. But what is driving this shift in policy? Demographics are a key part of the puzzle. China's labour pool is now projected to shrink by 35 million over the next five years as the birth rate declines, the population ages and more people retire than enter the workforce. How people save and invest as they think about wealth preservation are key for China's pension system development. So how will government policy seek to ensure that the corporate sector remains dynamic and innovative and keeps attracting the talent it needs? What sectors stand to benefit as a very different younger generation increases its purchasing power? With me today to investigate these questions and more are three of Fidelity's portfolio managers, each with a keen interest on the changes underway in China's population. London-based Aneta Winimco has a global focus on investing across demographic trends. In Singapore, we have Hiomi Ji, an investment expert on the China consumer. And joining from Hong Kong, we have Morgan Lau, a fixed income portfolio manager. Welcome to you all. Thank you, Paris. Hello. Thank you very much. Aneta, before we get started, let's lay out exactly what we mean when we talk about demographic change, because it's not just about people getting older, is it? Yes, it's not just about that. So demographics is a study of population based on factors such as age, of course, but also race. And we look and, and sex and everything to do with, with people. Uh, we look at socioeconomic information like employment, education, uh, income, marriage rates, birth rates. So obviously a lot of factors, daily life factors that impact how populations shape in the future. And China, from the demographics perspective, is fascinating because how, how fast and how dramatically China is changing. And Hiomi, what role is policy playing in this shift? We know that the two-child policy was changed to a three-child policy uh, this year. But what lessons have been learned from the move from, let's say, the one-child policy to the two-child policy? And what's been the result so far? The results of moving from one-child policy to child was largely disappointing. And honestly speaking, the expectation for the change from two-child to three-child policy, again, is not that high. And people often say that the main reason that the Chinese people are not very enthusiastic about this two-child policy or three-child policy is to do with very high cost of raising children and managing families. And therefore, there are increasing discussions on three mountains that you mentioned earlier about the cost of education, property, and healthcare. And Aneta, just coming back to you, you know, with your global perspective, what measures have other countries taken to counter declining birth rates? Well, today, almost all developed countries have the issue of aging populations. 
and they are all trying to take measures to encourage families, but most importantly, women, uh, to have more children. And it's very hard. It's much easier to dictate and tell people to have less children than encourage them to have more children. Um, in mid-income countries, uh, some financial measures like giving people money for having a child, uh, that helps. Uh, what has helped in the Nordics is kind of the cultural approach where men take paternity leave and, and take care of children the same way women do. Uh, but there's one quite concerning um, kind of mood developing where the Generation Z is actually questioning the idea of having children because of the impact of the population, still growing population on the planet. Uh, so I think we all have the issues and we all are trying to solve them, but with, with little success. And a strategy that other countries such as Japan or Germany have pursued uh, in terms of dealing with the issue of an aging population has really been through their immigration policy. Uh, Morgan, what are your thoughts on this? Do we feel it's worked elsewhere and could the same strategy work in China? I think in the context of China, it's going to be quite difficult uh, because of the huge populations. And we are talking about uh, immigration, even in very, very large number, is not really going to move the needle. So I think that um, in its traditional sense of immigration might not help as much. If I can add a little bit more here, actually, immigration is used in a slightly different concept in China. It's more about moving people from rural area to cities. So when there is job and business opportunity more in cities, people are willing to move there. So we've been seeing very consistent trend of urbanization over the past 30 years, and it is still on an upward trend, uh, partly driven by population, but also driven by more development around the big cities to link through better transportation network and to link through better infrastructure. So according to the latest National Statistics Bureau in China, China, the urbanization rate has actually accelerated in recent years to now achieve over 65%. And Chinese government is still very committed to increase this rate by 1% point per year to reach 80 to 85% in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. So this indeed has been a key driver for consumption premiumization. Thanks, Hiyomi. I mean, the other thing that we often see when, we, when we're faced with the, the prospect of kind of shrinking, you know, working age population is this idea of kind of raising retirement age. I mean, do you see that happening in China, Hiyomi? Well, uh, it's quite debatable, frankly speaking. So the average age of a retirement in China is only 54. And this is among the lowest in the world. And this is about 10 years younger than the average retirement age of OECD countries. The government has tried to uh, really persuade people to work longer, but that has been proven very difficult. So both younger and older generations have their own reasons to be quite critical about uh, this policy change. And the latest feedback from the, the officials is that maybe the retirement ages can be gradually lengthened over stages, like a few months every five years kind of thing. And you bring up such an important issue about this, the the savings and investment kind of consequences of these demographic changes. I mean, you know, Morgan 
Chinese households invest a disproportionate amount of their savings in real estate compared to what we see elsewhere in the world. Is that, a, is that a problem? And do you see any progress in Chinese households diversifying their savings in, in other asset classes and in other investment strategies? I think this comes from a long traditions and a very familiar behavior that you save more. And when you save enough, you start buying a property. I think this is very fitting to the Chinese uh, tradition. Um, the problem that caused is uh, your, your capital market tends to be very, very um, homogeneous because the capital goes to the bank and bank lending in the form of loan. And so the bank um, being the main risk uh, taker, um, they determine what kind of company can get the funding they need. Now, that's uh, the lack of diversification. We have seen that um, in, in, a, 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 as an issue in the capital market. Uh, we have seen a lot of initiative in China to open up in, for example, the equity market, the mutual fund market, uh, and very, uh, very recently, the bond market as well. And all of that, not just change, hopefully, not just the behavior, but as well as um, how long company can get funding and what kind of company can actually get funding they need and becomes more market-based. So it, these are all very good development, but it's going to take more years for it to um, uh, come to maturity, just like what we're seeing in the developed markets. Thank you. Digging more deeply into this issue of the aging population, what other lessons can China draw from other countries with that specific demographic challenge? For example, Japan, Italy, South Korea or Spain all come to mind. Lots of lessons, of course. Um, well, Japan actually has aged faster than China is expected to age. So obviously quite an interesting playbook to look at. But it is complicated by the fact that at the, at the end of the 80s, we had the massive property bubble that then collapsed. Uh, so so, so the, the kind of aging is kind of uh, also... Um, complicated by, uh, by, by, uh, by what happened to the economy. Uh, but what we learned from Japan is that uh, the work uh, life can be extended. The Japanese people keep working and, and they seem to be enjoying working. Uh, so I hope uh, the points that Wyomi raised about extending uh, of, the, of, the, of the postponing the retirement uh, is, is, is going to be taken uh, quite, uh, quite, quite fast by the government. Um, what we also have seen in Japan, and, and uh, I think we all know that J Japanese people have a very long life expectancy, it is the healthy uh, food that they eat. So again, lessons for the Chinese <laughs> to, to pay more attention uh, to, to what they eat, exercise. I think, I think uh, there are some po policy measures that the government is already taking to promote uh, the healthy lifestyle. And I think this, this, it, it will move uh, into that kind of direction over time. But I think that the interesting difference between China at the point of aging and Japan back then is that in Japan, the wealth has been controlled by relatively mature older people and continues to be controlled by, by, by the elderly today. In China, the wealth has been created very fast and really is controlled by, by, uh, by the generation X. Uh, and, and obviously, they are not going to age that fast. I am part of that generation myself, so refuse <laughs> profoundly to age. So these dynamics kind of make China a different place because the older people uh, don't really have that much wealth. So the state will have to step up and help them much more so than probably was the case in Japan. 
Kyomi, you, you focus on China, but grew up in South Korea. Um, can you tell me any lessons uh, for China from what we've experienced in, in South Korea? Sure. Actually, South Korea has been uh, one of the fastest aging society over the past 10, 20 years. So a lot of uh, lessons that we can draw from that. First point is that the Korea has moved from export and investment-oriented economy more towards domestic consumption-driven economy. Of course, it's still much smaller in terms of domestic consumptions uh, mixed within the GDP growth. But China, the domestic consumption can become much more substantial part of the economy. And I think all this trend that we are seeing in China and the messages from the leadership, how China has to move away from export and investment oriented towards domestic consumption is very, very valid. If you think about the, the labor cost in China is going up and the labor pool itself is kind of shrinking over the longer term. The second point is that the pressure from aging society can be really alleviated thanks to technology and robotics adoption. So, for example, in Korea, uh, like the, the Hyundai Motors, uh, which is one of the major manufacturing company in Korea, its factories are 95% automated. It's all driven by robotics, and it's one of the world's highest robotic penetration country. So I think China will definitely uh, follow this trend and is already on that track to be a major leader of technology and robotics utilization. Thank you, Hemi. It's such a great point. Um, to hear more about how Chinese companies are already adopting innovative technologies to combat their dwindling workforce, Hong Kong-based investment director Catherine Young caught up with portfolio manager Casey McLean. Casey, as a portfolio manager, one of your areas of focus is the innovative technology that's indeed emerging and taking hold in China. How does that theme play into the demographic megatrend that we've been seeing there? Demographic trends in China are very interesting. On one hand, you've got China's birth rate, which fell to a record low last year. And much of that was due to the COVID pandemic, but it's really the last in a long list of steady declines. And some people are predicting that over the next 10 years, the, the women of childbearing age could drop by as much as 30% and China's birth rate could actually fall to the lowest in the world, lower than Japan. So what this means to me is, is baby-related markets are slowing. The size of these markets and, and related products is shrinking. But on the other hand, uh, the size of the working population is also diminishing. It, it's predicted that the over 65s as a portion of the population will double by 2050. And many of these people are in, working in the blue-collar jobs today which the next generation are really reluctant to take up. So when you couple that with rising wages, which with the gap widening versus other uh, low-income countries, as well as technology improvements, it really, really plays into automation and robots as a way to replace that labour force. So China has industrial robot penetration that lags many of the other industrial nations, but they're catching up quite quickly and new installations are far and away the highest in the world. So I think in terms of the demographic megatrend, the long-term trade is to sell babies and buy robots. <laughs> so Casey, on that note, one of China's largest technology companies is already taking this automation theme to somewhat of an extreme, aren't they? Yeah, a good example of this is Foxconn, who operate quite a few lights-out factories in, in China. 
these are factories that use 5G connectivity and IoT applications or Internet of Things to thoroughly automate all the production processes. So the, the results are that there's huge gains in efficiency. For one of Foxconn's factory in Shenzhen, which does consumer electronics, they've seen a 30% increase in efficiency. The inventory cycle time has reduced by 15%. And they've saved 90% of their labor. The headcount at that factory went from 328 down to just 30 people. And, and so this, these sorts of facilities, they, they're very important as they meet two of the, the Chinese government's key policy targets. Firstly, they increase efficiency and automation, as, as we've discussed. But secondly, they also uh, save energy. And that's important as China's progressing to carbon neutrality in 2060. So from a long-term growth perspective, clearly lots of savings to be made as well as a solution to China's diminishing workforce. But in your view, how quickly is this trend developing? Yeah, well, Foxconn in particular, they've been rolling out these factories across their own facilities in China uh, for quite a while. But now they're just starting to get orders from external parties. They now have orders from 10 different industries, from, from auto to cement to tobacco, and they've just announced that they have 50 factories in the works for external customers. Another trend to, to be watching is, is the growth in robot sales in China, which has accelerated generally. And it wasn't just in industrial automation where robot use increased quite sharply, but it's also in other areas like food delivery, where some companies are trialing contactless delivery robots to deliver groceries. Uh, some of the e-commerce companies are also trialing drones for deliveries as well. So across all these automation type applications, we're seeing a big pickup in, in the adoption of the key technologies. Casey, thank you so much. I am going to think of you later when I, I tell my kids lights out and before they start rolling their eyes at me, I'll be sharing some of these really interesting insights with them. Thanks again. Thank you. Casey McLean there talking to Catherine Young about how China's aging population is helping steer a lot of companies towards automation. Inessa, I want to turn to you. China has a very advanced digital economy, but there's a generation gap. I mean, how do you see the older generation embracing technology or what innovations are being developed to help uh, this society as it ages? Interestingly, I've been discussing just this issue with Tina, our, our internet analyst in Hong Kong. And uh, an interesting data point she, she gave me was that um, more 40% um, of people 60 years and older spend more than three hours on digital devices per day. Uh, that shows that even though maybe they are not as digitally savvy as their grandchildren, they definitely know their way around uh, around, uh, around smartphones. Um, also, the fact that apps very often offer the best possible prices and deals, I think that attracts um, the uh, attracts the elderly who are much more uh, conscious in terms of how much money they pay for basically everything. Uh, so I think there are natural uh, kind of ways to attract them. Uh, and, and, and obviously the digitalization makes our life easier, like uh, home delivery. Uh, once, once getting out of home is not so easy anymore, obviously that comes in quite handy. Uh, so I think the older people in Japan are very much on top of, of what the technology has to, to offer them. 
Excellent. Um, and just also thinking about technology in the context of, of healthcare. I mean, what, you know, Hyomi, what are you seeing in China on that front? Sure. So technology in healthcare in China is uh, first and foremost used as tools to manage down the overall healthcare cost. So if you think about it, the the world's biggest healthcare spender is Chinese government, and they want to explore many different ways. And one way is to cut the unnecessary costs and drugs that people might have to spend. So telematics to make that a lot more available to wider group of people. The government can have a proper track of how the drugs are used, how the pricing is done, and also it's not abused, basically. But what's more important and has become quite a topical issue for uh, the investors these days has been how Chinese government will think about the overall uh, innovative drugs development in China, because we all know that innovative drugs can be quite costly, but also it's something that China really needs to develop on its own, because otherwise its dependence on other countries will only grow as more and more people will become aging. So it's quite interesting to note that how uh, this year's national uh, reimbursement drug list has uh, been coming out. So there has been this discussion in Beijing over the past three days, and then the results have been a lot more encouraging than feared because the government seems to want to allow the innovative drug makers to uh, to make proper profit out of this. So we'll see how it goes, but I think there are many different ways where the government wants to really tighten their wallet around healthcare spending through technology, but also there are areas that they are still willing to support and encourage people to innovate uh, more products and services within healthcare. Yeah, that's that's that makes it so interesting. And and obviously, you know, as well as sort of physical health, we have to think about kind of financial health as well for you know the 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 older um, part of the population. And you know, um, Morgan, maybe turning to you, I mean, what sort of investment products and solutions do you expect to, to see increasing in popularity to cater for the needs of the, you know, the, the over 60s, for example? So in, in, in general, in, in terms of investment products, uh, if we look at them as investment as well as insurance, um, as a, a country move from emerging market to developing to developed market, we see different type of investment product as well as in, different type of insurance product that uh, would, would get popularity. So in, uh, on the investment side, usually people or uh, an economy will start with equity. So as they have a bit of saving, they start buying some equity. But um, as they, they get over the 60 or uh, when they're starting to uh, they retire, looking at more stable income, then they start to look at uh, fixed income as well. Um, but I, I think some of the topic that we're talking about, we realize China is learning a lot of lessons from all other countries. And so some of their products are already very multi-asset in terms of uh, mindset. So they would start with uh, equity, but already with a bit of fixed income elements, and then move on to what we call fixed income plus, where it is uh, mostly a fixed income product, but with a bit of equity exposure just to keep the capital upside. Um, we, we see similar thing with insurance product as well. So uh, a product would probably start with uh, something like a term life insurance where you worry about, you know, if you, you do pass away in, at a work, suddenly then you, you, you want your family to look after, then you start with some insurance saving product. And then later on you move to annuity. 
And then the last uh, leg of this development is usually what we call um, a, a reverse mortgage type product where you pledge your house and then you get an income until the day you die kind of thing. So I think all of that is happening all at the same time, but different pace in China as well. And so these represent um, a lot of potential way we can help with that sort of development too. Thank you. To hear more on the challenge facing China's pension system and the opportunity it offers, Lily Song, who heads up Fidelity International's Beijing office, caught up with Ren Cheng, a senior advisor at Fidelity Investments in the US. Ren has spent years working on pension and retirement solutions in the US and regularly advises on development strategies relating to China. We have heard a lot lately about China's demographic challenges, including a shrinking workforce and aging population. Uh, can you describe the pension gap challenge China is facing? Thank you, Lily. So we are really talking about a large scale issue because up till today, the main part of traditional pension in China is what usually called the first pillar or DB plan, defined benefit plan. The essence of defined benefit plan is younger people contribute into this pool of assets to support the distribution to senior citizens. So you need a what they call the pyramid-like demographic structure. There are more young people than old people. And for all sorts of reasons, we don't have as many babies especially in China nowadays, as we used to. So the population demographic structure has shrunk from, shrunk from the base, <laughs> from a uh, pyramid structure to almost a cylinder structure. And in 10 years, it will be an upside down <laughs> pyramid structure. That's a serious challenge. What do you think are the ingredients necessary for a sustainable solution? We need a systemic institution that almost force a regular automatic discipline in investment into this plan. That's critical. And we need a set of laws, regulations that ties very closely with this product and human natural behavior, which is irrational. Most of your investment career focuses on retirement products and the strategies in the U.S. Uh, what comparisons can you make to situation China today? It's remarkably similar. That is a excessive focus on short term, aka people will do a lot to avoid short term loss. When I talk to Chinese investor and even institutional investors, semi-professionals, the word I heard the most is a G word, guarantee. Although it's a different country, different culture, different system, but human beings are human beings are human beings. What other pitfalls should be avoided? The worst thing to do is you gave the regular consumer who have absolutely no prior experience in investment a large pool or selection of all sorts of different mutual funds and products. In US, it failed miserably. Most people 
did the wrong choice at the wrong time. We like ready-made solution because nowadays everyone is busy, especially in China, what's called 996, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Do you think they have time to watch the market on a daily basis? Come on. What is specific to the system and the culture in China should be considered when thinking about the pension solution and how might that help progress? Chinese in culture, at least traditionally, is a saving-oriented culture. I was brought up in this environment, and uh, from day one, saving, 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 saving for, uh, for a tough day. But right now, Chinese stock market is mainly dominated by retail investors, a trading, short-term trading behavior, which is extremely detrimental to long-term wealth accumulation. So that's something that's in the current culture that whoever designed the system should be very cognizant of. Because if you allow fast in and out trading behavior in the individual retirement accounts, most people will lose a lot of money at the end of the day. Ren Cheng there speaking with Lily Shong. Morgan, listening to Ren's comments about the propensity for saving and risk aversion, how do you contrast that with some of the really short-term retail-driven investment behaviors that we see in China's markets? And do you see that mindset changing at all? Uh, yes. So I, I think we have to, again, put that in, in historic context. So the reason why... Um, the deposit rate has been so high. Um, I mean, traditionally, we do like to accumulate wealth. And so that if you represent someone with that sort of mindset, with a quick win sort of opportunity, like a casino, they would like to go into it. Now, I think equity investments um, or investment in general is still a fairly uh, new idea, as in this modern form um, to, to, to most of the, uh, the, the Chinese population. And so when they look at the equity market, all they hear is some really quick win opportunity in the equity market, and so they decide to go into it without a lot of analysis. We can be long-term investors because we do a lot of fundamental analysis, and we know um, companies of that sort of sector, for example, what the development would be like, what the price would look like. Um, that is absent in terms of you know, the knowledge and the kind of conscious decision is not there for most of them. And therefore, their behavior, looking at you know, 30,000 uh, 30, square uh, feet, would look like they would like to go in and out. But I think it's more because it, there's a lack of um, culture, a lack of instruments for them to express a more stable sort of mutual fund investment type of behavior. And that we have seen in many other countries, like when they move from emerging market into developed market, they will always go through a more retail-driven equity market and then into more institutional-driven type market. As more people buy mutual funds, pension funds, uh, insurance uh, 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 product, all of those institutions will grow bigger and start to dominate the market and change their overall behavior. So I think that is just something that is a growing pain, so, so to speak. So I, I expect that to change um, very, very quickly, again, because China is learning a lot of lessons from other countries. Yeah, no, excellent point. It's almost like going through a kind of a phase of maturity that we've kind of seen many times 
uh, previously. I mean, one of the interesting things about that is, you know, and that is a, is a, a topic that I'm really passionate about, is that sometimes when we kind of look at demographics, we sort of always imagine that populations will age in the future in the same way that they've aged historically, that their patterns of behavior are going to mimic those of, of prior generations. I mean, do you think that that's true or do you think maybe we'll see different behaviors start to emerge? I think each generation is, is to its own. And, and obviously the way the silent generation has aged uh, is very different to the way the baby boomers in the US are aging. I think we have lots of data and, and lots of anecdotes. And, and we see um, the generation of women in the 70s, 80s, kind of living life to the full. And obviously the same applies to, to men. Uh, and 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 uh, and obviously the question is how will that play out in China? Are the Chinese kind of elderly more similar to the silent generation? And they probably are because they have they have had it pretty tough in the uh, young uh, young years, and and they 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 are aware what it means uh, not to have maybe enough food or not to have the things that are necessary. Uh, while uh, the baby boomers that have lived the life to the full in the US, they, they want to continue to live their life in the same way. So I think each generation is very specific to the way it was shaped in, in the young years. That's such an excellent point. Now, each year, Fidelity does a survey with Ant Fortune on attitudes towards retirement readiness in China. And one of the things that really stands out are the generational differences, exactly as Annette has spoken about. The 2021 survey published in October showed the pandemic got young people to start saving more. Those 25 and under really started demonstrating that behavior. But around a quarter of them say that, still say that cash is their primary mode of retirement savings. And a similar number, 23%, said that they lack the financial knowledge to start investing. Hyomi, how do you think about the next generation? What role will youth be playing in terms of the development of China's economy? I think the youth role in Chinese economy will be tremendous. And it's an area that we really need to keep our eyes on because the way that, that their consumption behavior evolves, the way that their saving behavior evolves will uh, imply a lot of new emerging brands and winners and potentially losers uh, that, that we need to really pay attention to. So in my view, I think we need to understand the big difference between how the younger generation versus older generation are in terms of their attitude towards savings and also consumption. When it comes to savings, yes, it's true. Maybe during the COVID, maybe they are a bit more willing to save. However, if you still compare the younger generation overall to the older generation, younger generation is a lot less keen on savings and a lot more open to spending. And we can see that from the, the very fast-growing consumer credit market that we have witnessed over the past 5 to 10 years, whether it's autos or it's just e-commerce, from small ticket item to very high price ticket item, the penetration of these credit products has expanded tremendously during this time. And another way to think about this is why would they be willing to take a bit more risk in terms of their credit? It's also to do with how these post-95 or post-2000 generations have become very 
optimistic about their future and also have become very proud of where they are. And that's to do with how quickly China expanded its GDP over the past 30 years. So if you look at it, no other country uh, can boast a GDP per capita going up 30 times in the last three decades. The closest uh, was India, which has multiplied by eight times. So you can see that if you are 35 years old in China, you feel great about all this achievement that your family made, that you made, and you can see that your life standard has become much, much better. So when you see they are becoming more affluent and more educated, different types of consumer behaviors will emerge from that. And as an investor, it's very, very um, interesting area to me. And do we see, for example, Morgan, changes, generational differences in attitude towards things like property and, you know, debt? You know, I mean, there's, there's been such a, uh, a strong policy drive towards, uh, you know, individuals not looking at kind of residential properties as a source of saving or investment, but really as, you know, as accommodation. Do you think we're going to see a, a substantial differential attitude in some of these things? I think so. So follow on what, what Hyomi was uh, just talking about is within one or one to and a half generation, China has made such big progress in terms of the economic um, um, improvement. So some of my relatives in China actually grew up as a farmer and now they own like so much wealth they couldn't even imagine when they were younger. Now, so they grew up with a mindset of saving and um, you know security because they did they didn't know whether you know next year whether they would actually have as much harvest to now have enough food or even too much of that so the older generation has that saving mindset because of necessity but now they have the mean to save a lot of money and therefore the deposit rate is really high so this is not something we have seen much in history this is something new but the newer generation they grew up looking at all those wealth enjoying the benefit of it say so they don't tend to worry as much just like what Hiomi was saying they feel good about it they feel very secure so the deposit rate is likely going to be a lot lower and um, a, a lot of them also as of right now anyway makes less than their parents did um, uh, in, in, in their generation and therefore some of them feel like they should just be enjoying so one of the most popular term in China was uh, Tangpin, uh, which basically means lying down. So they, they, don't, they don't try to work hard, they just enjoy. So I think that is the other extreme from the older generation. So we are going to see a mix of all those very extreme and somewhere in between behavior in the future market. And that's going to change everything that you just mentioned, property ownership, uh, investing, and even personal debt, uh, taking credit uh, uh, as well. We were talking earlier about the change in policy towards the three-child policy, but for obviously for a lot of the young people today in China, they grew up under, under the one-child policy uh, regime. What, what are the ramifications of that? Something that we have to really think about, and it explains why China might have sometimes drastic policy to change this trend, because in, in actuarial term, we call it the replacement rate, is each couple should give birth to... 2.2 to 2.3 babies on average. But right now, most of developed country is below two definitely, and some of them below one even. And that trend usually only goes in one direction. What China is trying to do now is not just to stop that trend, 
but to revert that into giving more birth into, you know, up to three. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially in, um, in, 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 in the sort of mindset of becoming middle class. Once you become middle class, think about how many kids your friends have around you. Not many have three kids. And two kids is below replacement rate. So if you want the population to not get any smaller, especially the labor force, you have to act really fast because there's an 18 to 20 years time lag before you actually see the effect, which is why they're acting right now, really drastic policy to really reverse the trend. I think that is, um, you know, that explains some of those policies. But just coming back to the Generation Z and, and the way the way uh, Generation Z has been shaped in, in, in China and, and the very interesting points Wyoming has made, how kind of wealthy and entitled they feel with all this kind of positive developments uh, in, uh, in their personal life when it comes uh, to, to just being more and more well off. Uh, and the demand for the kind of pleasures of the world, the luxury goods and all that, that we are seeing globally. But I think it's also a generation that is quite lonely. Um, they, they do spend quite a lot of time online. Uh, and I think it's a generation that um, anyone who can offer uh, some kind of feeling of belonging or companionship uh, while uh, including technology in that process is probably going to do quite well. Um, an example is a platform like Bilibili, but obviously there will be more and more innovation. So I think the, the kind of idea of, of loneliness, and I don't know what government can do about that, how government can convince people uh, that the solution to feeling be, be, being lonely or feeling lonely is having three kids. <laughs> then you're not lonely for sure. <laughs> Uh, so it's an interesting, interesting generation, and 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 big question marks. How will they behave as 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 they they mature and and think about setting setting up families? So it's quite clear that you know China is going through this very significant transition in terms of its development as an economy, and an aging population represents a significant challenge in many ways for for policymakers. And also what we are likely to see is it creating a significant evolution in terms of the demand for financial products, the use of technology, and of course, as, as our guests have touched on, the, the consumer trends that we're likely to see going forward. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much to my guests, Aneta Winimko, Yomi Ji, and Morgan Lau, and to our other contributors, Casey McLean, Catherine Young, Ren Cheng, and Lily Song. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Seb Morton Clark, Neil Goff, and Rory Fong, with production support from Tommy Su, Keith Chun, and Alex Wilcox. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.